0: This is EntreEd Talk, the podcast for entrepreneurial educators by
1: entrepreneurial educators. We are your hosts, Toy Hirschman and Amber Ravenscroft. This podcast is created by the National Consortium for Entrepreneurship Education or EntreEd for short. Hi everyone, welcome back to another exciting episode of EntreEd Talk. We are so excited to be here today with Sydney Gray. Sydney is an entrepreneurial professional with years of experience in partnerships, revenue, operations, and project management. She's raised over $11 million to support initiatives to expand entrepreneurship and economic development, specializing in data-driven storytelling and supporting the development of data-based fundraising systems and strategies. She is also the founding director of Mama Maji a social enterprise leading in the field of innovation and water-based social franchising in Africa. And today she is recording this live from Paris. So welcome, Sydney. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're, we're pumped. I mean, there's so many things. And I know before we started recording, Toy was talking about how your name is very much a superhero name and we're excited to showcase some of the superhero efforts you're doing in this space but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit before we dive into some of your current work on your own journey and how you got to where you are today. So actually
2: my previous career was in veterinary work. My undergrad was molecular biology of all things, which I think serves me well now. Um, but I was in veterinary work and having kind of a crisis of, like I always thought I wanted to be a veterinarian and I discovered I really didn't as a long-term thing and that's quite an expensive investment. So I spent a couple years with this crisis of like, what am I gonna do now? And then I found myself at this breakfast in San Francisco with a group of entrepreneurs and I grew up in a more low income working class neighborhood and where I grew up the concept of a business started, an entrepreneur a CEO like those were people on films. Those were people in these stories. They weren't people we knew, they weren't real people. At best, somebody could hope to be, you know, maybe a lawyer if they got into a good school and their family had money. Um, But I was at this breakfast and I saw these two men literally from nowhere just decide they were going to start this business. One had connections to financing, the other had a new idea that he was pitching them, and they literally stood in front of me and were saying to each other, yeah, let's do it. Okay, we'll start this together. And It was just this moment that really stuck with me where it has developed into this answer of, why not? Why can't I do that? So then when different opportunities came to me, that was my answer. Live in Kenya for three months, why not? Raise 20,000, why not? Um, start my own initiative working with women, why not? Go pitch your money in Brazil, why not? Get to speak at the United Nations, why not? And that's really what's kind of driven me since then is why not do these things? Why not experience all of these things that come up and do and work with all these amazing people? And that's what really got me into entrepreneurship. This idea that you could build things, yeah, basically. (laughs) Um, Amber,
0: that's the bumper sticker. Why not? I love that. That's like that's so that's so simple. But that is, I just got I got goosebumps. Like, of course, why not? (laughs) Oh my goodness, I I just want
2: to give that
0: nugget to every child that I run into. I mean, when
2: you reframe all the opportunities that come to you into the, well, why not do it? It stops being about all the reasons you shouldn't and all becomes about, well, why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I get to do this regardless of where I come from? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I love that because there's a lot of things about like women being unapologetically like who they are. And I think that speaks really well towards that And I know, so I had actually written this in the idea that you were coming back here before you were recording it. But you're still on your international trip. But I I actually went
2: back to New Orleans before I came
1: here. Okay, (laughs) we're just we're a global walker here. I have have extreme
0: travel envy
1: (laughs) right now. Negative six here
0: today.
2: Oh (laughs) Jesus! I do not. (laughs) No, thank Uh, you.
0: So, so Sydney, oh man, I, I'm just so excited to have you here. This is just a, like, I've looked at all your stuff and it's, it's amazing. It's amazing what you're doing. Um, can you share, I mean, you're obviously traveling all over the place, but, um, can you dive into, to Mama Maji a little bit and your work and what you're doing and how you're just really
2: blessing the lives of,
0: of people all over the world. And I consider it my life.
2: that's blessed to be honest by working with the women that I get to, um, I got into it at the request of some women. I'd already been working in Kenya. Like I mentioned that, why not, you know, why not live in Kenya and do this? I'd already been living and working there. And basically why I was there, it was done. I was supposed to leave. And the group of women in the next community was like, oh, come do this with us. We want, th- we want to work on water issues here, come work with us. And they wanted me to come do that with them. And it was another one of those moments of why not do this. So I uh, started working with them and I really discovered that what we do with Mom Maji is we use water as a platform to empower women. Water is an all parts of the world, but especially in developing countries, it is the first barrier to women's empowerment and women's growth. Um, But that also means that it can be one of the best platforms because water is a woman's sphere. They're the ones that go and collect it. They're the ones that take care of people in their household. When they get sick, they use it for washing. They use it for the agricultural that they often have right around their homes. Um, And what I discovered working with these women on this water thing is it is that platform for empowerment. It gives a place where women can speak. in in arenas that they normally can't speak in. For example, the Barazas, they're called Barazas, they're town councils. The women can get up and speak about the water issues that they're working on, an avenue that's usually only available for men. So that is kind of my passion behind it. It's that empowerment and getting to work with these amazing women. And since I've been doing that, that for the last seven years, and we've had the opportunity to work with, thousands of women at this point training them in business and co-creating that's the important part co-creating water businesses as a studio so i have the expertise in a lot of the storytelling we as a group that work on this have expertise in businesses and we work with these women who take on the term maji mamas that's where the franchising comes from they become water women um, because maji is uh, water for swahili so it's a very it was actually created by the women they wanted that name Um, and it allows them to build businesses that are relevant for their community. So right now, our most recent venture that we're working on is actually south of Nairobi in the Rift Valley. I love this one because we have the opportunity to work with, um, her name is Chief Kosium. She is the first female Masai chief. She is a powerhouse. Um, A chief, by the way, is basically a mayor over a small region. In her case, it's a village area, um, a sublocation. And she was voted uh, about 15 years ago in by her community to be a leader. And she has become a leader and a real advocate for women's empowerment. We've been working with her and a group of women that she has been creating women's groups with to develop a water construction business. So building water tanks out of bricks. Yeah, and that's been I love that. So exciting.
1: I was going to ask about the name, so I'm so glad you told us the origin of the name. I wasn't sure if it meant something. I love that, that they call themselves Maji Majimamis? Maji Mamas. I love that. That mm-hmm. is so it's so inspiring to hear about um and so I don't want to speak for you, but I know that we have a lot of in terms of our podcast guests so far, they've been a lot of, you know, the United States focused entrepreneurship space mm-hmm. and so it's so interesting to hear an international perspective especially in developing countries and areas that's great yeah I
2: never but business that. is business business is business right you have supply chain you have financing you have customers like it's all the same everywhere it's just different slightly different regulations I will tell you that but I, in terms of what it takes to build a business it doesn't matter if you're last mile somewhere in Kenya or if you're in New York City it's the same it's the same building blocks yeah I just I, I never thought about that as it makes sense now that you
0: you've you've talked about it but as water being the biggest barrier to women's mm-hmm. empowerment i think that that's so cool to take that you know because because in those areas it that is their job and i, I you know i've heard of that and so to take that and turn it into a platform in a way that these women can become business mm-hmm. owners and and have control over their lives and help people it's, it's unbelievably
2: cool i there's a really excellent study that came out recently called The Ripple Effect. Uh, I believe it was Coca-Cola and G-E-T-F, and they actually have a very long study um, and working with USAID talking about the different aspects of water, how they in- intersect with women's lives, and how it can be used as a lever in itself to work with women.
1: That's awesome. We'll have to check that out. Yeah, I'm, I'm just fascinated by the, that the whole concept, and I mean, it's awesome, the work that you're doing. And I know that you also consult, and you talked a little bit about this on your bio intro, um, this idea of storytelling also resonated heavily with what you were just speaking towards. But I know from Toy and I's perspective, one of our biggest hurdles often is how do you articulate the importance of entrepreneurship, especially in an education lens? So you do a lot of work around data-driven storytelling Absolutely. And I'm
2: going to give an example in the domestic entrepreneurship space. One of the things you run into is, especially if you get too close to a project or a problem, is you get really passionate about it. And you have a hard time remembering that most people don't have the same reason to care. Most people, they have to be convinced to care. And it's not a matter of like if I say to you, um, the state of black businesses in New Orleans is appalling. You should really feel some way about it and you should invest to make it better. That's nice, you have to, maybe if you are a long-term friend of mine, you might take some validity in that. But if I tell you 60% of New Orleans is Black or African American, 40% of the firms in New Orleans are are Black-owned. And of all the receipts in the city, 2%, 2% of all receipts in the city goes to Black-owned businesses. And that results in a huge asset gap. So the average black owned business is worth only, I think it was about 15,000 versus the average white owned business is about 350,000. Like when you start to say that, that makes you feel, oh, I hear how important that is. I hear how deep that is. I don't have to trust you necessarily in your perspective. I can hear that data for myself and hear how, how much that matters and how much we need to change things on that.
0: Wow. That's,
2: that's true. Cause when you said that, I went, Ooh, <laughs> yeah. that reaction. And when I'm talking with funders, that's the reaction I want. I want funders within two paragraphs looking at, at an application and going, Oh my God, I care about this. Like I had never heard of the situation before, but I care.
1: That's a super interesting perspective of like how to tell, like you want them to feel icky right away, like uncon, like confrontationally, uncomfortable about what Mm -hmm. is being presented as a need. We have this often, and I know Toya, probably we are a little bit too close sometimes, that what you said resonated really well because I think we know the importance of it because we see it daily, but somebody Mm -hmm. on the external side of that might not understand in true numbers what this means in terms of impact. So I love that you're approaching it that way.
0: We do, we have we have that challenge of telling our story <laughs> sometimes. And I think it's that kind of that curse of knowledge because we are so close to it.
2: And I think a lot of people, what they'll do to kind of bridge that is try to tell individual stories and that matters. It does, but only within a larger context because that larger context is what's gonna drive real need. A person to person thing is one thing, but when you can really connect a person to 400 people, Um, that creates much more of that urgency. Like you want them to care and then you want the problem to feel urgent.
1: Yeah, definitely. Do you, let me ask this, because we work a lot in the the K-12 space and we've Mm -hmm. talked a little bit briefly on the front end about how difficult it can be to articulate numbers for that space, because it's a little bit more long-term goals in terms of actual Mm -hmm. job creation and development. Do you have any Mm -hmm. recommendations for how you could, not spin, but how you could tell the story from a number and narrative-driven perspective for anybody that's listening?
2: I think I'd want to look at the numbers where if I'm looking at K through 12, I'd be wanting to look at what kinds of populations of K through 12, because K through 12 is kind of monolithic. If you're working with, like if you're working with some of the neighborhoods I came from, for example, what the kind of story I would think about telling would be, okay, in these average wealthier zip codes, we're looking and seeing a lot of these children are coming up and you can see these businesses, maybe if we can find the business rate that comes out of some of these, or the average rate of businesses for a certain income class, that which is what these schools are, and then potentially talking about, well, here is the income status of the students that we're working with. Historically, we know that this income status has a much lower percentage of entrepreneurship, which is directly correlated with lower asset growth and directly correlated with lower job growth for that community in itself. So if we invest in this now, and we know these are the skill sets that you need now to develop into that, that will matter for this long-term wealth development for the family and the community.
1: That's really interesting. There's a study, actually, a toy that we have uplifted before about the lost Einsteins and the idea of different brackets of taxpayers and their, mm-hmm. their taxes and licensures and all that stuff. It's interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, you you talked a little bit about um, going to find investments and and how you tell the story and share you know share that kind of that urgency with them? Do you have a do you normally look at private foundations or are you kind of a mix of different, do you look at a mix of different types of funders like federal government or
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: foundations, things like that? Do you, do you, how do you kind of go after that, that funding?
2: entrepreneurship speaking of entrepreneur well first i'm going to say i specialize particularly in government and institutional um so uh foundations government um city but that means both federal state and city um but also in the entrepreneurial side when you think of entrepreneurial support either at the educational space at the in the community space it You're not the ones going and, let's say, feeding the homeless, right? It's not that immediate direct service. It's almost that capacity building a level above. And it's possible to do things like individual donors. It absolutely is. But it's harder from that aspect. So a lot of people want to be directly connected. It's a harder case to make sometimes um but in terms of the institutional government space for funding it can be a really good space because they're looking at more systems change and long-term building so it's really well it's a really good fit usually for them um and it depends on kind of what you specialize into what what area is better you know if you're looking at federal government they care a lot about job creation uh, especially if you're looking at sba or eda they care a lot about job creation particularly um, if you're looking at state or city funders, often they tend to be focused on industry specific. So how can we, because, you know, big clusters has been a big thing in the entrepreneurship space for a little while. You know, how can we make this area a regional cluster for something or build off the strengths that are already here? Um, like, for example, in Louisiana and New Orleans, there's been a lot of studies around, um, studies that the Regional Planning Commission did that was saying, you know, advanced manufacturing, shipping. um, water management, both in terms of like uh, green infrastructure, like the rainwater because of the flooding, but also the maritime and things like that. Those are all good industries to build. So if you're looking at an industry focus, particularly that that can be a good pot of money. But then if you're looking at things like equity, if you're looking at things like whole family and changing the outcomes for people in the community, private institutions are very good for that.
0: That's interesting perspective. That's that, that is, I like that because we, I mean, we run up against that all the time and Amber, Amber, especially because she writes a lot of our grants and it's, (laughs) and and, and it's always like, okay, they're looking at job creation. Well, we Mm -hmm. think we are going to create jobs in 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you know, how do you, that, that sometimes I know that's a struggle for us to articulate, but that's a really neat perspective. Thank you
1: for sharing that. Absolutely. I love the industry clusters too. Um, one of the things that, and I know you've been well-versed in this space for a while now is it, you've noticed that industry clusters are kind of arising in alignment with entrepreneurship funding and supporting that. Are there any other trends that you've noticed in that space um, just from <laughs> economic development
2: as a whole? I think the biggest, well, yeah, there's a couple economic development broadly. Um, there's obviously been an equity trend. There's been a lot of focus on what does it mean to have entrepreneurial opportunity become equitable, right? That even comes even my basic story. If nobody in my neighborhood knew to start a business, then uh, how could this be an opportunity that 's available? Their equity in entrepreneurship is has been and is going to continue to grow as an interest. The uh, national funding network there 's a national funders network for entrepreneurs, which brings to my second point that 's been focusing heavily on that and The second is collaboration um, and that 's on a couple different levels. The funders are beginning to talk to themselves talk to each other much more, talking about who they 're funding what they 're doing how it can be collaborative. The funders are expecting entrepreneurial organizations to to collaborate more within themselves, less we're going to do everything and more we're going to be niche and basically stair step our services through. Mm -hmm. So the the entrepreneurial support organizations, whoever they are, need to collaborate more with universities to do tech transfer. They need to um, collaborate with city government to try to get the permitting cleared up Mm -hmm. and things like that but also the entrepreneurs themselves. I think that the era of the solo entrepreneur is dying. Um, it never was a thing, mind you, but there was an ethos about the solo entrepreneur and this image you know, like a Jeff Bezos or anything like that. And it's not true because it's a team and it's rarely about the unicorns. Um, and building those relationships and being able to collaborate on every level matters so much. There's a there's a really great uh, TED talk by Ernesto Ciroli and it's called Shut Up and Listen. And the first part is great for its own reason, but into the second half of the TED Talk, he gets into talking about how um, there's kind of three legs to entrepreneurship. You have to either know how to make it, sell it, or keep track of the money. And no one person can do all three things. Um, maybe you can make it and sell it, but you're not gonna be able to keep track of the money. So I think that, cl- and even entrepreneurial support organizations are recognizing that and looking at the entrepreneurial teams, not just this you know, mythos of this entrepreneur.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh- and that kind of lends itself to the idea, there's been this growing buzzword around the idea of entrepreneurship ecosystems, I'm sure. You I'm mm-hmm. right uh, out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. yep. And do you think that that's kind of the why that's been, dura- that's been growing is because of this push for funders to have more collaborative projects to see entrepreneurship not in isolation, but as a team effort? Yes,
2: and. I mean, because entrepreneurship isn't done in a silo, not even just a team. There is a whole ecosystem, as they say, the entrepreneurial ecosystem that affects it. I mean, thinking about permitting, there was a situation with one of the entrepreneurial sport organizations I've worked with where they had an entrepreneur who, in New Orleans, you have a lot of homes that were originally built to be a shop front with the person living above it. Right And that used, that's how they were built. And this person wanted the shop front in their home to be their uh, hair studio, but they couldn't get the permits for it. And that's a part of the ecosystem, like the permitting process, where the financing is coming from and who it's going to. I mean, if you can't get capital or you can't get The recommendations to capital, you can go nowhere. So it's recognizing that all of these pieces have to come together because no amount of technical assistance on building your QuickBooks or getting an accountant or making a hiring plan is going to matter. If you can't get the $20,000 in debt bridge financing that you need to make this happen before you can get a contract, it's just not going to happen.
1: Yeah. I was, I was wondering that's. I wanted to bring that up because I know that that's something that I feel like a lot of people and their narratives are uplifting. Is this idea of you know it's a it's a greater ecosystem development process, and it goes back to that mm-hmm. idea and that whole process. So mm-hmm. yeah, no, I, this has been powerful to just hear your perspective. We don't often dive in on this conversation uh, on this mm-hmm. podcast, but I think it's valuable for our listeners to really be thinking in that way. For mm-hmm. Sure,
0: especially because you're in the you're in the social space, so. It's a it's a little bit different of an animal than, you know, you you're, you've invented this product or you're develop you know you have it, it's a whole lot more comprehensive, and that's just something that that a lot of people don't immediately think about as
2: entrepreneurial. Yes. Yes.
1: Hi all, we are super excited to offer an exclusive discount for our listeners to attend this year's Entre Ed Forum, taking place on November eighteenth and nineteenth in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We have an incredible lineup of speakers and experiential learning opportunities to help you ignite entrepreneurial thinking and integrate entrepreneurship into your learning communities. Use promo code ENTREEDTALK to receive 5% off of every individual registration. Again, that's promo code ENTREEDTALK. To learn more about the forum and register, visit www.entre-ed.org today and subscribe for updates as we launch new things happening every week as part of the planning for the forum. Thanks. See you there been like for you you know growing Mama Maji and having international funding streams coming in I mean could you speak a little bit towards that I'm just curious because we also uplift this idea that it's a global marketplace now so I was wondering if you could speak towards that at all
2: so Mama Maji has been I mean if you know the life cycle uh, So there's for-profits and then there's non-profits in terms of startup scale. Um, For-profits, you know, year and a half, two years, if you haven't gotten traction, maybe you should give it up. Non-profits, the average startup time is seven years. (laughs) I say this to my clients a lot. The most risk-adverse capital you could ever get is philanthropic capital. They want to, you know, a funder wants to give you $100,000 because they know 500 kids are going to be fed three meals a day for this set of months. Like, it is a it's a contract, frankly, it's a, we're going to give you this. And these are the outputs that are coming come out. But starting up with a nonprofit takes more time. So actually a lot, even though it is in that business development space, a lot of our narrative has been around that direct service. And a lot of our funding has actually been crowdfunding and individual donors. We've been very bootstrapped for that. Um, So what hasn't been revenue for the businesses, so a lot of the businesses are self-sufficient, but in terms of the services and Running the studio that has been heavily crowdfunded until uh, a couple months ago.
1: That's interesting. I didn't realize that's a that's a heavy lift. <laughs> it's a, yeah,
2: which is why I always advise everybody: if you're going to start something, if you can do it as a for profit, do it as a for profit.
0: Yeah, yeah a lot of time. I mean, when you think about that, that's it, that's very hard for. It's hard for anybody to start any kind of business, but to have put that much time into a nonprofit, I mean, and just thinking about, you know, you'd be bootstrapping it, you probably have another job at the same time, you know, all, all of those things that would have to go into that, that's that yeah. is a labor of love. So you really must be passionate about what
2: you're doing. I am very passionate about it, which helps. And it's helpful to have such great women to work with. Um, but that's why I have clients outside of it. Right. <laughs>
1: Absolutely, every side gigs. So you mentioned the um, the most recent adventure that Mama Maji has kind of helped kickstart. I was wondering if you could uplift a couple of the other ones that have maybe spurred off as a result. I'm just, fa- I'm really fascinated about the idea of water the water and in- as an empowerment tool in general. And so I'd love to hear more mm-hmm. about what's grown from that.
2: Well, let me talk to you about the oldest business that we've worked with. It's called the Chico Water Company, and it was actually started by an NGO. Well, it's it's called a CBO. It's a community-based organization. It's actually based out of in Kenya and run by started and run by Kenyans. And it was founded by this spectacular woman named Anastasia, who she became a nun. The main point of the organization, it's mostly a health clinic working with HIV AIDS and orphans of the HIV AIDS pandemic. But I mean, among the things that come up with HIV AIDS is food security. Um, like if the water is not good, it's hard to take the medications and keep them down. And then for the medications to be effective, if you're constantly sick, if you don't have enough food, you don't have enough food on your stomach to take the medications. So food and water are big concerns. And so they have a, a food garden that they use to help distribute food and help subsidize some of their work and they needed water for it. And so the Chico water companies like spun off of it and they're basically the owner of the Chica water company. And what we've seen come out of the women that are there, um, because we started working with them seven years ago. So the women we've worked with, about 150 women in that area to do training, water health and sanitation, business leadership. And there's dozens of women who have gone back to school, number one, like let's just talk school. Like they go back to get some education and they get and their girls are staying in school longer. Um, they have spun off themselves 52 different inst- like, uh, initiatives or uh, community-based organizations for small things in their community that did things like helped organize the electrification that the Kenyan government was doing so they could get power lines out at least to the major market centers. Um, and then actually one of the communities right near there also elected their first female village elder which the elders are, it's not like the chief position, but they're the elders in the community are the ones that are the advisors and help help basically make decisions in the community itself. I mean, just from basic sense too, like when I first started working there, the women were walking everywhere. Mobility is a big indicator for women's empowerment. Um, a lot of like places where women's empowerment is at the lowest, the women are in the home. They don't really get to go to the they don't get to go to the market center, or if you get to places that are doing a bit better, they might get to go to the market center, but they have to walk there. Um, so when I first started working there, the, the women were walking places. They had some mobility, but didn't have much access, but now they all bike. Like There's a whole bunch of women that own bikes now, which was, I was laughed at when I first started biking in that community, I was laughed at. <laughs> and why, why were you laughed at? Was- <laughs> well, because it just looked so absurd to them because the women didn't bike, they walked. Or, or because I was a Mizungu coming out, I should have come in a car. That was the other part of it, to be fair. <laughs> I, I wasn't renting a car to be driven around in. That was also part of it. And it's small things like that. And it's small things like um, there there's one, one woman we worked with, Sarah. She didn't have an interest in the business or in the construction because we were getting women involved in the construction project. But her interest was in health. Because she had wanted to be a community health worker, but didn't get to because there wasn't enough money in the family and she she was basically being married off. Um, so she actually did the water and sanitation um, because we did a train the trainer basically to train people to be able to go out in their own community and do water and health training. It's marketing for the business and it's good for health, yada, yada. And she actually managed to stop. She worked, she vol- she got this training, she did, she did. She trained 400 people in the first two months, first off. And then she was work, She was volunteering at a health clinic and recognized a, somebody who came in with cholera and managed to call in the Kenyan government to come bring out ambulances to find the people with cholera. They found four people with cholera and managed to stop a cholera outbreak. Cholera outbreaks aren't usually found until 100 people die in these communities. Um, so, I mean, it's everything from bikes to construction to this, you know, the female village elder. It's 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 been amazing to watch and see. And the business has four locations, about 50 home taps, and is running so fully self-sufficient.
1: Yeah, no, I was just so interested from in the growth trajectory of it and, and what that was like. I, I'm so glad you spoke to that because I think it's powerful just seeing the ripple effects itself, yeah. what came from that. Um. that. That's incredible.
0: It's just... I think it's funny that we're talking about water and ripple effects. Sorry, just it's <laughs> why that study was named that. It's very, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, just having the that that kind of that first that first push end up sparking mm-hmm. all of these different ideas and businesses, and that is incredible. That is incredible to see, and it's especially mm-hmm. when we're talking about women's empowerment, it's it's really the epitome of of selflessness to go out there and and help these people that then can go and help more. And that's very powerful. Do you have any, so before we close, any parting advice or any tips that you might give to educators that are, we have educators in all different types of communities that are, you know, impacting and influencing young, young minds and Any any tips that they might use to help
2: students see the why not and and Mm. go for the things that they dream about? I actually had the opportunity a couple years ago to go to Pakistan. The U.S. Embassy of Islamabad brought me there to speak with universities about creating entrepreneurial curriculum. And when I was talking to a lot of people, and this is my firm belief, it was interesting to see some of this come up. Is there's one like there's a level of business like the you have to learn, you have to learn how to you know do customer surveys you have to learn how to develop you know supply chains and things like that but when it comes to developing entrepreneurs especially if you're talking about younger not necessarily university level the biggest thing you can do is spark creativity and make basically dealing um make them more uh, resilient against failure you can hire people to do customer service you can hire them to do accounting but if If somebody doesn't have both that creativity, that interest, that spark, but also that resilience against failure, like they're not going to get very far. Being able to, I always say it's assess, address, and then withstand risk and tolerate that failure. So I always love doing things like failure call outs, like how did I fail today? Like what did I do wrong? Because you will fail most of the time as an entrepreneur. There is no question you are going to fail 90% of the time and maybe succeed 10% of the time. And that tolerance, especially in, in younger audiences, matters a lot.
1: I love the idea of at failure call-outs in classrooms. Can you imagine like that? Like, that would
2: be so much. I'm going to
0: do it. That's going to be yeah, so much fun well, to do.
1: That's great. Like a, like a tangible, just a first step in that direction. And we, I mean, yeah. we uplift it all the time, like creativity and, you know, pushing through, failing forward is how we phrase it, is something that we just try to get educators to understand. So I'm so appreciative that you from an entrepreneurship lens yourself recognize that and have uplifted that.
2: Yeah, I always um, always tell this story because every entrepreneur is going to have a bathroom floor moment. I always call them the bathroom floor moments. It's that moment, you're going to have several of them as an entrepreneur too, but -hmm. it's that moment where Something has gone so terribly wrong that literally all you can do is sob your heart out on on your bathroom floor, like close your door and just sob your heart out on your bathroom floor. That is going to happen if you go down the entrepreneurial path. So I mean, that resilience to be able to get back up off the floor, open the door back up and be like, okay, I can do this again matters. It matters so much. And, And if you just keep failing and keep trying, you will succeed eventually. There's no question.
1: That's powerful. We should end on that note. (laughs) Sydney, we're so appreciative. I think your story is just, I mean, I can't speak enough towards how much it's impacted myself today listening to you. So I can't wait to hear other people's thoughts on it, but if they are interested in learning more about, you know, your work that you're doing in Africa, your work that you're doing internationally, how could they connect with you? Um, the work in Africa, it's
2: That's M-A-M-A-M-A-J-I.org. That's uh, a lot of MAs, I know. And that's that's the work that we're doing with uh, women in uh, East Africa. And then my storytelling, it's gray.inc. Um, and that's where you can find me. Sydney at gray.inc is my email. Great.
1: Well, thank you so much. This has been a true pleasure. I'm excited. um, And we look forward to just remaining connected with you and and continuing to learn about your work.
2: And thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, thanks for being here.
2: This has been wonderful.
1: I am like, I'm
0: better for having (laughs) met you. (laughs) Awesome.
1: Well, thank you
0: so much. I feel quite honored.
1: You all take care.